0: Um, we're continuing our, our series, From the Heart, uh, today, where we're really moving off the back of a sermon series through uh, April uh, and May into June called A Different Spirit. If you've been at the Vine for some time, for a season, uh, you'll know we were doing that series on Numbers 13 and 14, looking at the uh, spies that went into the promised land, asking the question, maybe it's a Caleb spirit that we need in this season and in this hour in Hong Kong, with all the changes that we're facing uh, July one coming up this coming week, uh, the one-year anniversary of really a significant change in our city, and we're all still wondering how do we live now and navigate now as Christians within this new context. And we've been saying that maybe there's this different spirit for us to carry in this new season, and. Uh, the From the Heart series is really a chance for us to hear from some of our leaders that have been here at the Vine over many, many years, uh, some of the founding pastors, some of the current leaders, uh, and, and, and ask them a simple question. What's on your heart for the Vine? What's on your heart for us as Christians in Hong Kong in this hour? How we might begin to live out this different spirit Uh, That we feel the Holy Spirit is calling us to. And uh, today I couldn't be more excited uh, to invite up someone who's been a long term uh, mentor to me, uh, a friend, uh, a father in the spirit. Uh, Would you put your hands together as we welcome uh, Tony Reed? Let's put our hands. Welcome, Tony. Have a seat, my friend. Thank you. Welcome welcome to my living room. Thank you. We have 400 people
1: music background as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you like my drumming? Mm, That's was good, good, wasn't it?
1: Pretty
0: good. Anyway, um, so <laughs> it is a real privilege to have you with us today, Tony, and um, uh, we don't say that lightly. Uh, you've been uh, a part of this church for 25-something years. Um, it doesn't show, don't worry. Um, but we are so grateful, and I, and I recognize that there's probably a bunch of people maybe in this room, and particularly maybe those online as well, Um, that don't know you as well. Uh, Maybe they're relatively new to the Vine in the last year or two, and uh, maybe you could just tell us a bit, first of all, who you are, how you came to Hong Kong, uh, your journey with this church. Uh,
1: Thank you, Andrew. It's a a great privilege to be able to be with you and to uh, just speak to you today. And Well, I arrived in Hong Kong in 1986 uh, with my wife and three children, And uh, we've since adopted a a young Chinese girl, so we have four children. Um, But I came not as a pastor, I came as an engineer. And uh, that has always been my training uh, uh, to earn my living. But all my life I have been involved in uh, uh, the church. The church has been on my heart. Uh, I've done many, many jobs in different churches and... Uh, so as I came to Hong Kong, what was on my heart was thinking about what was, why was God bringing me here? What was that purpose? How could I serve in the church in some way? Um, and so as, uh, as we began looking around churches, we eventually ended up in Repulse Bay Baptist Church. I think, uh, I think you I might be there. familiar with it was well. I was
0: I was like 14.
1: 14, yeah. A while ago. I don't think I was your Sunday school teacher, but uh, <laughs> never mind. No, you weren't. And uh, that church, of course, then evolved by a number of stages into the Vine Christian Fellowship and then the Vine church itself. And uh, that church had a a certain character to it, which uh, attracted a number of people, and uh, it grew, and it was run by a group of about four or five elders uh, who ran the church uh, as a sort of lay ministry, all doing different jobs. And as the church grew, it became apparent that we really needed someone to be able to look after and to minister to the church, to be the pastor of the church. And so we advertised. And um, at the same time as that was going around, both John Snellgrove and myself really felt God speaking to us. And I I felt speaking to my heart um, quite late in life that, actually, Tony, yeah, perhaps you should be a bit brave and step up and... You know, maybe this is a role that you should take, and so uh, we both put our names forward to the elders and said we both feel that god's calling us. What a choice <laughs> and uh, so, to their great credit they they appointed both of us and and I must say uh, i I treasure the faith which those pastors put in both of us at that time and uh yeah as we as the church has grown and as we 've seen the, the, the all that 's been happening in the vine and just uh sensing that God had asked us to grow a next-generation church. The realization, of course, dawned that we were not next-generation pastors, (laughs) so we better start looking for one. And very fortunately, there was this young man in the congregation who was a brilliant speaker and able to really express the heart of the vine, being with it from the beginning. And so it was our great privilege to be able to hand over that leadership to Andrew and at the same time for us, a huge privilege to be able to still serve in the church. And uh, so, that's my story.
0: You know, I just, can we put our hands together, just to honor this man? I, I just think it's amazing. There's, um, there's not a lot of churches that would allow two people to be senior pastor at the same time. Um, there's not a lot of people that would be able to be a senior pastor alongside of another equal senior pastor at the same time. Uh, and there's not a lot of people that would stick around at the church after they've handed it over um, and continue to cheer it on and to believe that it's for its best. You know, the Vine is incredibly blessed with with Tony and John Snellgrove. Um, you're going to hear from John in a couple of weeks in this series. Uh, I, I think it's an amazing thing that we should never take for granted uh, that God has done. It's passing through into the next generation. Um, and I admire uh, you guys. All right, I'm going to stop. Yeah. Loving on Put that, that baby. We used to be a, a love <laughs> fest for like 30 minutes, so we'll stop that. Um, you and I have been talking quite a bit about yeah. this different spirit series, um, mm-hmm. and um, you know uh, the role that Tony plays at the Vine is our justice advocate. Uh, so Tony has a role here to help keep me and the other pastors and the church uh, up to bri- uh, up to kind of um, uh, kind of date with all the stuff that's happening in terms of justice, social justice, God's heart for justice. Uh, the social-political context of Hong Kong in the city, Uh, and much of what you perhaps have heard during a different Mm -hmm. spirit series coming from my mouth uh, has really uh, been birthed out of conversations that Tony and I have had uh, around what we're sensing the Holy Spirit is saying about Hong Kong and the social-political context, and so that that series was quite personal for both of us, and um, I know you wanted to share a few things. Yeah, I
1: think it was, uh, uh, I think it's been really very significant for the church, you know, To me, this has not just been another series, another series. Uh, Although, of course, all of these things are important for us. But I feel this is another chapter for the church. And um, I feel it's not only been significant for us. I think it's a significant word for the whole of the Church of Hong Kong. Because it's allowed people to be able to reflect, um, not just to accept things that are happening around in a passive way, but to be able to, as you know, as Andrew has shown us, how to live our lives with that different spirit. And so I think it's opened up for us a lot of possibilities. Uh, you know, thinking about the, the social and political circumstances that surround us and just appreciating and understanding what that means. Um, considering then in that context what the gospel means for us today in those circumstances. And then lastly, I think. Uh, trying to work out what sort of community that we we need to be in response to that. And I guess it's uh, it's partly that that I want to talk about today.
0: Well, so Tony and I have talked a lot about um, the gospel, and you might have heard in the Different Spirit series (coughs) me talk a lot about the gospel and how this is a a significant inflection point for the gospel. And um, one of the things that I think uh, has really resonated for us as we've conversed is the idea of, well, what is the gospel? And, and perhaps we don't um, embrace or grasp the beauty and the power of the gospel uh, as much as it was originally intended to be seen and grasped. Um, so, I know you want to share a few things around that. Tell, tell us, what is it for you that's really buzzing about the gospel in this time?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I, th- I think the important thing is that because of these circumstances, we're forced to sort of reevaluate the value, the importance the centrality of the gospel to everything that we're doing. Because, uh, you know, if we're going to live in this different spirit, then we've got to be able to have some solid ground. We've got to have some solid things in which we are basing our lives and living our lives as well. And, of course, we're called to be disciples of Jesus. And so I I think there is a challenge to us in this, a challenge to me to look again to see what it was that Jesus was saying and how he was living and how this affects the global church as well. And so <clears throat> I, wanted, I want to start by focusing on two um, imperatives that I think are important as foundations in how we view what our, our perspective of the gospel is about. And the first one really is understanding and appreciating the initiative of God to save the world from destruction. You know, put yourself in the place of God when he created the world, you know, and, uh, and all of this process, all of his love, hard work, and creative process goes into creating this amazing place, this cosmos, this planet. And then thinking about all the possibilities of what that might mean in terms of the glory of this place. But then afterwards, when seeing things going downhill, seeing the sin seeing all the destruction, seeing idolatry, seeing all the desperate things that were happening in the world. Imagine what his heart must have been thinking about. And he must have thought, either I'm going to get rid of this and we'll start again. Let's do something different. Let's do something new. But God didn't do that. God was so intent. It was his imperative to save the world, to redeem it, to make out of the mess that we have made it something that would bring him glory. And of course, the the key verses that we read in Scripture that tell us about God's heart for this are really in in John chapter 3, in uh, the most well-known verses in the Bible. Um, John chapter 3, verse 16. Let me read them to you again. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes through him or in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And, of course, normally when we read these verses, we, we think about the love of God, the, you know, in sending Jesus. But there is that little word, gave, that God gave his son. And in this giving, I think, we get a, a, a sort of little picture into God's heart, a little sense of what God was doing here, that there is a sense of, almost of, of, of desperation, You see, I don't think we see the risk. I don't think we see the commitment of God. I don't think we see the danger that was involved in what God was doing here in sending his son. I don't think we see the sort of drastic action that was required. And there is within this, I think, a reflection of God's the necessity that he felt to save the world. It was imperative, that was his heart, and that he would go to any extent in order to redeem and save this world. And we also have to see the way God does this now. You know, he's he's not now condemning the world. He's not now thinking about destruction. But now we see a different face of God. We see the love of God. We see the embracing, the open arms of God, just like in in, uh, that parable, that story of the lost son. We see the, the sacrifice and the love of God welcoming, embracing us, wanting us to have that relationship with him that would save us.
0: I think um, I think what's really important for us to, to reflect on here is the reality of this dangerous gospel um, that in God giving... You know, we've made John 3.16 such a bumper sticker, right? Like it's on the fridge magnet thing, and we kind of know that verse so well, and yet it actually contains this beautiful risk that you're talking about, this danger to yep. it. Um, And that risk really comes out in that second half of the verse, which I think is the second imperative you wanted to talk about, yeah?
1: Yeah, it does, certainly, because, of course, you know, John 3.16 goes on to John 3.17, which says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. And so it's important for us to see Jesus' mission, not as a condemner, not as a judge, but Jesus was inviting us the opportunity to have this new relationship with him and with God. But there is a choice to be made. And this choice is significant. Whoever does not believe is self-condemned. And so we see the imperative of God, the urgency of God to save the world. There's a possibility that there may be an outcome that God does not want to see from me, And I think we see a great tension here. There is a tension between the immensity and the initiative and, uh, and love of God on one hand and on the uncertainty of the response on the other. And it's this, this tension that I see, which I find so interesting, that God is, in a sense, pleading with the world that he will do anything to save the world from itself, even to the extent of giving himself in this dangerous manner in on the cross, this demonstration of God's love. You see, he's not, he's not commanding obedience, but he's inviting us a response of love, a response over which he has no control. You see, God places such high value on saving the world, redeeming the world, bringing about his creation to what he intended that He will risk anything, even to the extent of sending His Son, even to the extent of giving us the free will to choose whether we will follow Him. And the interesting thing is that we are planted in the middle of that tension as well.
0: I think it really is a tension. I, um, I think my daughter Mia, she's 10 years old, um, and for most of her life I've been commanding obedience from that little girl. And, uh, and she's been giving it, by and large. Um, but she's now at the age where, um, obviously, she's wanting more independence. She's wanting to express life and love, and she's wanting to make decisions. And I want her to make good decisions and yeah. good independent decisions. Mm-hmm. And so there's this stage, isn't there, in parenting where you have to kind of, like, let your children go a little bit. Um, and you have that anxiety and that will they agree? Will they continue on and follow well? Or will they make mistakes? And if they make mistakes, I have to let them do that, learn from that. But my love is so strong. And I kind of feel like that with me. And now that, that analogy breaks down between me and God, by the way. Um, but in some ways, that's what God does in giving His Son. He's giving us the, the kind of freedom to choose to respond to the invitation of grace or, or not to. And that's incredibly scary. Uh, It is scary. Yeah.
1: It is scary. And and the fact that, you know, God has entrusted us with this gospel, you know, I think we have to somehow take stock of what he has given us, because there is a tendency, I believe, for us to undervalue it. And maybe it's a challenge that we don't always see. And uh, so we get used to are very comfortable with our Christianity. You know, we come to church on Sundays. Uh, we learn the stories of Jesus. We read the Bible. We understand everything that, that, that happens there and, and all the community that we get praying together and the support and encouragement and the amazing sermons that we listen to. And somehow, if we're not careful, this can be so comfortable to us that, that we, it, we can tend to mold it to the shape of our own lives, instead of necessarily perhaps seeing the challenge to us. And and I think that we don't always tend to see the radical transformation that God has made in our lives. You know, that he's given us this new life, this new opportunity. He's changed who we are. And sometimes I feel for myself personally that you know, have I have I really devalued? Have I really honoured and understood the value of that thing which God has taken such trouble to give and make available? And uh, I like the way that the Apostle Paul talks about the gospel. You know, he he he, he doesn't talk about it as a message. Uh, he he doesn't talk about it as uh, you know an inspirational word or or, or something that is important for us to hear. This is what he says about this gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And that's a word for us, I think. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it is the power of God to salvation. The power of God. And so what I think we don't so easily and always appreciate that what God has given us in the gospel is the power of god it's a mighty thing it's a powerful word and we somehow you know think that we've got so little to offer uh, and that we you know that it's so difficult for us to do or we will not be able to do this thing right or live right but i think we have to understand that within the gospel there is the power of god and you know god is so mighty and so powerful and so for us you know the bible calls him the lion of judah And sometimes I feel that I denigrate Him. I treat Him more like my domesticated cat that sits (laughs) on my lap, you know? But He's the power of God, and that's so important for us to understand.
0: So, the gospel is perhaps more radical than we think it might be. It's perhaps more dangerous. Uh, It perhaps invites us into um, understanding life in fresh and new ways, maybe more than we even appreciate. Um, And I think there's this power in the gospel that... You know when we think about what it is to live with a different spirit i think it's this reliance and trust on the power of the gospel to be at work not just in us and through us but in our city and through our city and 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 this is i think what's really on your heart tony and my question out of that though would be how do you hold all of this together what 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 sort of metaphor like like how do you actually live out and deal with this kind of um, type of gospel how do you remember it in your day-to-day lives
1: well, uh, to do this, I, I, I tend to think more about, and I have recently been thinking more about the gospel as the kingdom of God. You know that, that when Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God is near you, and and all of his teaching was about the kingdom of God. And um, it's not just a message; it's not just something that is spoken, but it's a, a kingdom that we live in. And I think that there are a couple of things over the past fifty years or so within the sort of life and history of the church that have tended to, in some ways, limit the the scope, the intensity, and the broadness of the gospel. And I think one of those is the sort of traditional message that much of the the church has spoken out, that you know, Jesus came uh, to die on the cross to save us for our sins so that we could go to heaven when we die. And of course, there is a central truth about that message. But when we just limit it to that, then we miss, I think, something of the broader, the grander aspect of the gospel, of the kingdom of God that he spoke about. And another of the trends has been that um, we have, over the last 50 years, we, we've, we've modernized the gospel, which is which is good. You know, we, we've realized that we've got to use new language. We've got to be able to speak and connect with many people of different ways. And I think this communication has been good, and it has made the reality of the gospel more real in people's lives. Uh, but at the same time, because uh, it, it has been molded around us, there's a tendency for it to become more about me right. and my life right. rather than the kingdom of God. Yes. And so here is the result of this. We have a tendency to personalize and privatize the core emphasis of Christianity at the expense of a broader and richer understanding of its implications, really, on so many aspects of our life, our work, our community, and the government, and how we live together.
0: I think this is really important, church, that we we kind of really wrestle with this idea, because I think the reality is, you know, when we think about Jesus and we think about His involvement in preaching and teaching in Galilee and the starting of the spread of Christianity, when we look at Christ, we think He's... You know, it's tempting for us to think that He's just in the world to give a new moral philosophy or He's kind of in the world to tell you how to live your life better and, and live it in a way that pleases God. That's not what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. He's not trying to tickle your ears and help you to live slightly more morally good or ethically better. He's actually inaugurating a new reign of the power of God on earth. That's right. It's the kingdom of God. He's bringing that. That's what all of his teaching was about. It was all of his parables was about. He was trying to help people to understand you're now living in a new time, a new age. The kingdom of God has come, and in Jesus' teaching, his death, and his resurrection, that kingdom of God is now here on earth, the now but not yet. Uh, We strive and desire for the fullness of that kingdom to come as Jesus returns for His second time. But we live in this moment now where we are a part of this radical, dangerous, incredibly subversive, beautiful, hope-bringing story of a new kingdom, a new way of living. And that's really what the gospel is.
1: It is. And, and, And we have to remember that all of this, you know, Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life, was lived out in a very tense uh, social and political situation. You know, sometimes we like to view Jesus' life like we read in, you know, our Sunday school books and our picture books of, you know, green hills and sunshine and rainbows and, uh, and the, the nice words of Jesus. But really, it wasn't like that at all. Um, when Jesus came, there was a really quite a tense situation that was there that... Firstly, in the Jewish social background and political background that he lived in, um, there was a great divide between the rich and the poor and the wealthy. Uh, Those who had power um, were those who um, were able to exercise their authority. Um, But many of the people that Jesus went to first were those who were marginalized. They were the poor. They were the people in the, the villages around who were in desperate need. And so there was some sense of repression that was going on at that time in uh, Judea. The other thing I think we have to remember is that when Jesus was having conversations with the rabbis and the people around him, he was not just speaking to the religious people, he was talking to the uh, political leaders at that time. Because society, the leaders were uh, constituted the... uh, um, the Sanhedrin, which was like their sort of government, their parliament by which they made decisions for the city and for the people, how they would live. And then, of course, there was the temple worship itself, uh, which, again, had great restrictions on how people lived and what, um, on people's lives as well. And we see that there is that, that sort of quite difficult um, political, socio-political situation in which Jesus lived, And then if you put on top of all of that the Roman Empire, the Romans who had conquered them, then uh, you see that they were intent on maintaining peace and stability at any cost, including brutal suppression and crucifixion. And all around them, the sign of their conquest was the thousands of people that they just crucified. And so, there was this domination that was around them. And so, when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, it was already in a more immediately tense situation than perhaps we tend to think about or appreciate when we read the Gospels.
0: I think a lot of that social political context is lost. Uh, It's assumed because it's written to people of that day and of that era. They didn't need to explain it. It was already a part of the fabric of how people lived their lives. And Uh, And we have to keep it in mind when we read the stories of Jesus, there's a moment where Jesus heals, for example, on the Sabbath. Um, And, you know, on one level, it's an amazing story of the miracle transformative power of God, and that's often how we only think of it. But actually, Jesus does it on the Sabbath because He's also making a message about the controlling kind of situation of the day and how all the laws had restricted, actually, the work of this kingdom of God. God, and that A lot of people were going to miss the power of the kingdom, the true power, um, because they're more conscious of, of the structures uh, than they were of actually the liberating power of God. Um, his parable ministry was very much like this as well. Much of his teaching was designed to, to say something to the Pharisees, to the rabbis, to the rulers, the Jewish rulers and religious leaders of the day, to help them to begin to think differently about what this Messiah and this kingdom is going to be all about.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, and later on, of course, as Christianity developed, you know, um, w- w- we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that Christianity developed in this neutral, uh, very uh, appealing environment that allowed it to spread and to uh, work amongst people. Uh, we have to appreciate that there were there were restrictions. And the truth is this: that God nearly always reveals himself in times of trouble, or start something when there is hardship. And Christianity is often most vigorous when the circumstances are difficult. And and this is an interesting thing that we, we need to take on board, I think perhaps in our own circumstances as well. And so when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, the people who would have listened to him would have immediately started connecting the dots to that sort of environment that they lived in and not to the religious ones or or piety. And the gospel of course would have resonated most strongly with those who were marginalized, those who were at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum and with those who were outcasts and sinners. It it was them that would have received the freeing message of the gospel. And so it, it, it's not long, you can imagine, before tension started developing uh, within the Jewish society with what Jesus was preaching and teaching. And so I think the challenge for us today, and the challenge for many people around the world, is, uh, you know, are we prepared to live in this tension? How do we deal with this sort of ch- tension where we have Christians in many conflicting with different voices, different pressures around the world. And I think the challenge for us also here in Hong Kong is how do we respond? How do we, to this, you know, the political, social and political situations that we live in here in Hong Kong?
0: Yeah, I think this is... um this is a real challenge that I think Tony's bringing from his heart today, which is around, like, how serious are we going to take the gospel, you know? First of all, do we understand the gospel in the right context, in the right framework? And then how serious are we actually going to, to, to take that gospel? Are we going to embrace it? Um, and I know for you, you see that serious seriousness really sitting in kind of two primary areas, one about how we actually live our lives and one about how we actually see ourselves. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, it is. And uh, and I think that there's a key word here is that um, we have to reposition ourselves. I think we have to look at, recreate the, the sort of mental and spiritual maps of ourselves and realize that our primary allegiance is to Jesus, that if we are going to be able to make any sense of what's going on, if we're going to be able to respond or think about how we live in this environment then we've got to understand that our allegiance is firstly to Jesus and you know it was God's imperative to save the world but it's our imperative I think to maintain our strong allegiance to Jesus that he takes first priority in any questions or calls on our loyalty or on the things that we do and secondly, it's not just about allegiance, but it's also how we see ourselves, our identity. And um, this, of course, we, we understand and know that the core of our Christianity is that God has, there's been that new birth. They've, we've been reborn into his kingdom. We have a new life. We have Jesus, but we have the blood of the kingdom running through our veins, those thoughts, that spiritual life that we have. and. But I think we need to take it a step further and think about our identity. Um, That we are not just children of God. We have to know which tribe we belong to. We are Christians. That is our tribe. And it's interesting that this word, this identity that we so often use to describe and think about ourselves was, was not coined by the followers, the disciples of Jesus themselves at all. But it was a name that was given to the the, the followers of Christ um, in Antioch because of the way they lived their lives. It was in contrast to the society that was around them, that people were pointing and seeing them because they were not living like everyone else. They could see that their allegiance was to Jesus. They could see that their identity as a people was different and so they were a people who were living in contrast to the people around them and so the church in Antioch were creating if you like an alternative society because they believed an alternative narrative to the one everyone else believed and because they worshipped a different lord to the rest of their world And, and this the This meant that they were doing crazy things, like they were taking babies, off, caring for babies, off the street that were abandoned. They were looking after their widows. They were feeding the poor. They were treating their slaves like they were their brothers and sisters. Now, that may not seem like much to us, but in those times, in the Greek and Roman world, that was just like, whoa, you're doing that? How can you possibly do that? So they stood out in the society in which they live. And so in a way, their life was like a a sort of criticism of the politics and lifestyle of AD 40. And uh, because of that, they became known. You are the little Christs. You are the people who worship Christ. You are the people who worship different gods, different God to us.
0: And I, th- I, th- I think this is going to be so important for us as we, as we grapple with uh, what Christianity is going to look like, not just here in Hong Kong, but around the world, uh, with all of the changes that we're seeing globally happen. Um, and I, I, I want you to think strongly about where is your allegiance? I mean, seriously, like, like, is Jesus Christ your primary allegiance? And what is that going to mean for you in the years ahead? And do you identify yourself primarily... As a Christian, more than anything else. In, in other words, um, like you don't identify yourself primarily as Chinese or primarily as English or primarily as American or any culture as great as cultures are. That you don't primarily identify yourself as a certain um, political persuasion, whether you're yellow or blue. That you don't primarily identify yourself in various ways, your primarily identity is a Christ follower, is Christian, and that that becomes more important to you than anything else, and that that drives who you are becoming in the world today. Fully committed to Christ, fully believing that you're a part of the tribe of God, this kingdom of God, you're a child of God, and that builds unity and strength and purpose amongst all the people around you. That's a different spirit, right? That's that is the gospel that uh, at work. And it's interesting that you speak of Antioch as an alternative society. One thing we're going to be doing uh, in the second half of this year is a, a book study on uh, Philippians. Uh, and we're going to be looking at um, primarily how the church in Philippi lived as an alternative society. Now, importantly, not in rebellion to everything around them. And it's really important you hear this. Not in rebellion. They weren't trying to be different to annoy the authorities. They were living as Christians, as Christ-like as they can, knowing that in doing that, their allegiance was now ultimately to Jesus, knowing that in doing that, they're identifying themselves primarily as Christian before anything else. That brings them to helping those babies. It brings them to serving the poor. It brings them to living in a new way, to loving enemies and all these things. And in doing that, they create this alternative environment, this alternative side. Does that make sense to you guys? Um, And I think that's the beauty of the gospel, and that's what we're going to look at in more detail in the second half of the year.
1: Mm. Yeah, uh, and uh, really, uh, this, I think, is such an exciting time, church. I want to encourage every one of you to really uh, try to think about and assess, your, you know, your own life. You know, try to challenge yourself, how do I live and what's important to me in my life and what are the things I should be doing and how do I react and how do I behave? And um, so this different spirit, as I said, I think is a new chapter that we're entering as a church. And so I really encourage you to, to follow what we are doing. Listen to, uh, you know, these series and things that, that Andrew is preaching. They are really important to us. And so um, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done, church. And so together, I think, as we sort of recalibrate, reevaluate what it is God calling us to do, then please join us in this adventure and in this exciting journey that the church is on together. God bless you as you do that.
0: Tony, you are awesome. Could we give Tony a round of applause? What a man. What a ledge. So grateful. Um, I wonder whether we could all just stand together. And Tony, I'm going to invite you just to pray for us and and pray much of what you've been sharing and speaking over us uh, as we respond as a church. So why don't we just bow our heads and uh, allow Tony to speak again.
1: Lord, thank you so much for all that you have brought us. Thank you so much for that imperative that you have set upon to save the world, to redeem it, to restore the amazing creation. And Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to be part of this through Jesus. Thank you for your saving grace. And Lord, as we step into that place now, help us, Lord God, to step up. We ask you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to encourage us, to give us the strength. Lord, as we examine our own lives. We see the opportunities around us. Lord, that you would make us brave servants, brave bearers of your gospel, that as we bring the good news, you will pour your blessing and the power of your Spirit upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. I want you just to take a moment. Uh, We're going to go into a time just to respond with the Holy Spirit. And um, I wonder whether you just close your eyes on me again and just let's allow the Holy Spirit just to continue to speak. I think Tony shared some real wisdom with us today and perhaps there is something for you to sit in here about your allegiance right now. Maybe you recognize that there is a, a, a split in your allegiance and that you're hearing Christ calling you back to the centrality of Him to be primary in your life. Maybe you're wrestling with that identity is what it means to be a Christian. Maybe being a Christ follower is kind of number eight or nine on your list of how you would speak about your identity and who you are maybe the Holy Spirit wants to just challenge you a little bit and speak to you a little bit about that and remind you of that thing that Paul wrote I am not ashamed of the gospel to be called a Christ follower perhaps for some of you it's to just remember the radical nature of God who would send his only son so that we would be invited in grace to respond, not by being coerced or forced, but in freedom to choose Him and to choose Him and to choose Him. And Perhaps you want to just honor Him and worship Him and glorify Him for making that choice today. Whatever it might be and how you are to respond, allow the Holy Spirit to lead you in this time.